Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Robert Prentner. Robert is a Doctor of Philosophy, currently at the Department of Cognitive Sciences at UC Irvine, where he conducts research in consciousness studies, molecular physics, natural and artificial intelligence, and philosophy. His current project is Consciousness and the Emergence of Objects. Robert and colleagues have been working to explain their theory of consciousness in a mathematically consistent manner. Their group has published several papers on what they refer to as the interface theory of perception, using evolutionary game theory and complex mathematics to bring precision to their theories. Prentner's colleague Donald Hoffman forwarded this conscious realism to the mainstream in his popular book, The Case Against Reality. For the sake of making this conversation easier to digest, I'll do my best to quickly introduce the theory. The interface theory of perception states simply that the reality that we experience with our senses is analogous to the desktop interface on your computer. We may see objects in our world and take for granted that our perceptions of that object are a true representation of what's actually there. But in the interface theory of perception, these objects are merely a useful fiction, an icon that bears no resemblance to the true nature of reality, but one that helps our species live on and propagate our genetic information. Much like how a folder on our computer desktop may appear rectangular and blue, we do not assume for a moment that the contents of the folder are indeed rectangular and blue. In fact, the true nature of the computer interface consists of electric fields, magnetic fields, resistors, voltage toggles, and more. If we had to interact with the true nature of our computer desktop, we'd never get any work done. Much like how we pay top dollar for interfaces that simplify this reality in our technology, our perceptual systems have evolved not so that we experience reality as it is, but simply as it's best for us to perceive it. This theory also exists outside of space-time, meaning that our place in space and time is also just a very useful fiction. Hopefully this short introduction can give you enough of an idea to engage with our conversation. I absolutely love speaking with Robert. I sincerely hope you enjoy it too. Thanks so much for coming to talk to me today, Robert. I've um, been really interested to uh, pick your brain about a few things. You know, you've picked probably one of, if not the hardest problems that we face in the world today to be working on, and that's consciousness. Uh, I'd love to know why uh, that appealed to you so much. Yes, thanks, Cameron. Thanks for inviting me, for having me here. Um, my name is Robert Prentner. Um, I'm working on, as you said, on consciousness and the relation between consciousness and the physical world, the brain. Um, and I'm interested in, in, in a couple of approaches, um, in particular, um, what's called the interface theory of perception, developed by Don Hoffman and colleagues, um, and um, models, mathematical models of consciousness, which are consistent with it. Yeah. Um what was your training like when you when you first started? Like, how when was the first insight that you might be interested in looking at this, you know, colossal problem? Yes, well, um, I would say my my my, my interest in consciousness in the, in the topic of consciousness it started around um, like graduate school. Um, I originally did a, um, um, I, I started sciences, physics mainly. And I did also my PhD in the field, and then I switched to philosophy. So I'm now based in philosophy. I'm a philosopher. And during the time I did philosophy, I encountered Don Hoffman's work, um, which intrigued me very much um, because, you know, it's one of the very few or maybe the only approach which I know which is on the one hand very mathematically. Um, so Don really tries to come up, or we really try to come up with a mathematical theory of consciousness. But on the other hand, it's also a theory which has a lot of non-standard commitments. Um, so within the philosophical community, that's probably um, not, a, not a mainstream view, but I think it's a very interesting view because the mainstream view have a lot of problems. And um, in order to get around these problems, um, one might try out different ideas. Yeah, um, for those who might not know, would you be able to outline sort of the basic constituents of the interface theory of perception and, and what that what that means? So the basic idea behind the interface theory of perception is that our perceptions um, do not resemble reality as it is, but our perceptions are assembled in such a way um, that it enables us 
to act in the world. Um, so the metaphor, the one, one metaphor you can use is the desktop metaphor. Um, our perceptions are like a computer desktop, um, icons on a computer desktop that allow us to do some interesting and good, um, good in an evolutionary sense, things. And, um, well, I, I just said evolution. Um, so it's good to look at this from the angle of evolution by natural selection. So what would evolution do um, to an organism um, according to the interface theory? And there you find very many surprising things. And one particular, particularly surprising, but maybe also a bit um, difficult to, to swallow thing is um, the insight that the way how we perceive reality in terms of space and time. So the basic structures that we would attribute to reality are most likely constructions from this interface. So space and time do not resemble reality as it is, but space and time are forms or data structures which we use to order our experiences. That's, uh, it's so fascinating. I, I'll never forget when I first found out about this, but I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the standard idea in, in the cognitive neurosciences about perception is the fitter that an organism is, the more closely what it perceives is will be reality. Um, whereas, am I, am I correct in, in... Yes, that's correct. So there's so, this assumption in cognitive science and that our perceptions evolved in order to be more truthful. And the interface theory of perception says, no, that's not correct. And our perceptions primarily evolved in order to be more fit. And then the question is whether truth is entailed by fitness or not. And um, interface theorists usually say, no, it's not entailed. And we can give, or we, we gave certain proofs of that, mathematical proofs. Um, I was lucky to work with Don Hoffman, with Chetan Prakash, Manish Singh, Chris Fields, um, to work on these proofs. And it's very fascinating because it's very anti-intuitive. It really tells us, you really think, oh, no, that can't be true. Um, but then you look at the maths, you look at the stuff that you do, and then you say, okay, well, um, our best theories actually tell us that that's the way it is. So you kind of have to accept it, um, if you believe those theories, at least. And I think that's a very fascinating thing. Um, you start with a very, I would say, common intuition that you have, and then you turn it into a theory. You look at the theory, what does the theory actually tell you? And the theory is usually smarter than you. It goes much further than you would think initially. And then you look at the results um, of what you did, and then you might find that the results are really surprising. And I think this idea that space and time are constructions of our interface and do not necessarily resemble reality as it is, is a very surprising finding. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I don't have the capacity to understand the, the mathematics. I've had a look through some of your papers with Donald Hoffman and it's it's well beyond my, uh, my capacity to understand. But um, from my reasoning, it seems as though the uh, hypothesis set forward is that it's likely that uh, zero, nothing that we perceive resembles actual reality. Is, is the fact that nothing resembles reality a, a fair point or is there maybe 1%, 2% that re resemble actual objective reality? Well, I, I would say nothing is actually um, a better description of that. I mean, it's a, it's a bit te more technical than that, actually. It's generically um, the, the probability goes to zero in the limit. So what this yeah. means is that um, without further constraints, the probability would go to zero. Um, so it's nothing without further constraints. Of course, if you if you have some other constraints that you put into the theory, you might arrive at it. Um, but then it's very difficult to give principled constraints um, that would give you truth in the end. Um, so the interface theory, um, it doesn't work with any constraints except for the assumption um, that our perceptions evolved in order to um, guide the action of an organism. And then you will find that generically um, the probability is zero. Yeah, that's um, yeah. I think that's in Don's book. So uh, it's it's fascinating to think that our perceptions are um, completely not giving us an, a, a look at what's behind the curtain. I, I suppose, but it is is what you're looking into to try and find out what is behind the curtain or what is what is um, this objective reality that 
um, underlies our our interface. Yes, of course. That's I mean that's the big the big million dollar question, so to say. Um, the question what's um, behind those um, interface data structures representations, and that's actually a much more difficult question, I think. Um, and one of the I would say one of the characteristics of the way how we want to approach it is that we want to find a mathematical model of it because we have very um, high opinion of mathematics and about the capacity to reason um, using mathematics. As I said in the beginning, the good thing is you can make your assumptions precise and then you basically um, look at the theory and what the theory tells you. And that's not so easy or that's impossible if you just rely on your intuition or on your words. But with mathematics, it's different. And um, that's we think that's that's why we use mathematics in order to construct a theory or to look, or at, at least um, get an insight, a glimpse um, into what might lie behind those interfaces. Yeah, yeah. That's um. There's a question that um, a friend of mine came up with. Like as soon as I mentioned this to him, was if mathematics is part of our user interface, so to speak. How can we use it to gauge what's behind what's behind the curtain? Uh, what what? Of course, I mean that's a. I think that's a that's a fair that's a fair question. Um, not just from the standpoint of the interface theory, one would say, okay, mathematics. There are probably selection pressures to get it right, um, to reason correctly in terms of mathematics. So, um, I mean, one could imagine that our ancestors needed to know that one fruit and one fruit gives two fruits and stuff like that. Of course, if you can come up with a proof that our faculty for mathematics um, is not truthful, but this evolution is, is, is very similar to those of perceptions, um, then you might be in a bit of a troubled situation. That's true. I, I give you that. But from right. the perspective of the interface theory, um, there is actually no reason to assume this to be the case. Right. Excellent. I, um, I, I really wanted to get your thought on that. So that's awesome. Um, the interface theory of perception, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, posits that um, I guess what what may be behind the curtain is a um, a network of what's called conscious agents, which exist outside of space time and uh, sort of interact in a way that brings forth our our user interface uh, and and our perceptions. Is that? Um, fair character. Yes, that's more, that's more or less correct. So, um, if you if you if you take the position of uh, of the interface theory, then you might ask, well, okay, then um, if you think that space and time are just data structures, then um, what's lying behind that interface, so to say? So, one of the things is you would say, okay, well, it shouldn't be spatial temporally. It's something which has some some deeper form of reality, which is not spatial and not temporal. That's one thing. The second thing is there's a nagging problem. Um, in neuroscience and in, con and in cognitive science nowadays, which is called the hard problem of consciousness, um, which is basically very, even in a nutshell, the difficulty to um, jump from physical processes in your brain to conscious experiences. There seems to be an unbridgeable gap between those two things. So one assumption of the interface, uh, the conscious agent theory, you already mentioned the name, um, makes is that well, maybe consciousness is fundamental then. Um, and specifically, um, coming back to the mathematical theory of it, it should be a theory of consciousness without space and time. Or where space and time basically emerge as a kind of interface representation that conscious agents come up with. Mm, you, you mentioned the Chalmers hard problem there, and you also mentioned before that there are there are problems with the I guess the standard idea of consciousness being an epiphenomena of um, resulting from brain activity. Could you um, talk a little bit about what those problems are? Yes. So historically, um, if you if you look at the, the philosophy of cognitive science and the philosophy of mind, um, what happened is that people had actually a very good idea, which is called functionalism, um, where they say, okay, cognitive states or states of of, of mind uh, are like um, functions, computer functions. Um, but since the 80s and since the 90s, it's actually there were a lot of dissenting voices who said, okay, well, that's that's nice if you if you look at cognition this way, but it seems to be that experience can be captured with that. There's this elusive um, 
first-person feeling. Some people also refer to qualia in that respect. Um, it seems not to be captured in that framework. And there are other um, philosophical problems um, which have to do with knowledge, the way how we how we gain knowledge about things. Um, there are more um, logical, modal, logical, metaphysical problems. Um, the conceivability of zombies, um, David Chalmers' um, favorite argument against physicalism. I won't go into details here, but um, there are several problems that exist. And um, then, then it's interesting to, to see how you can how you can respond to that problem, how you can react to that problem, and the way how um, conscious agent theory, interface theory reacts to it is to say, well, um, then not let's not assume that processes in your brain, brain activity kind of produces or causes consciousness. Maybe the role is a bit different. Um, let's turn the problem upside down, so to say. Yeah, there are these um, neural correlates of consciousness that that people have maybe mistaken for saying that the brain causes consciousness, and it could well be the other way around. Is that is that um, something? Yes. That so, so, so I mean, there are neural correlates of consciousness, and um, people now have ever more refined notion of a neural correlate of consciousness. So, a good example is basically if you um, if you simulate your brain here, then your color vision um, might be affected by this. And, 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 and so there are these correlates between brain activity on the one hand and consciousness on the other hand, but it would be a logical error to draw from that the conclusion that brain activity causes consciousness or brain activity is the same as consciousness um, that doesn't really, doesn't really follow. So um, if you eat ice cream, for example, statistically, ice cream is correlated to murder rates, um, but that doesn't mean that ice cream has any causal, um, has anything to do with, 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 with committing murders. Um, doesn't, is not the case. Or the train, um, when a train come, drives into the station, then usually a lot of people um, will be around the station. But that doesn't mean that the train causes the people to come or the people to come cause the train. Um, their relation is a bit more subtle. And um, the same could be true about the relation between brain activity and consciousness. Just because you have correlates doesn't mean um, that brain activity causes consciousness or produces consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, Don refers to his, uh, to his ideas as conscious realism. Is, is that correct? Yes. Um, so the idea behind the name conscious realism is just to say, well, there is this, um, well, on the one hand, we have consciousness. On the other hand, we have a, a certain kind of realism, which assumes that consciousness um, is, so to say, um, there when no one looks at it. I mean, it's the real thing that really exists, um, independent of the way how we think about it, um, how we represent it. Um, Yes, so it's a, it's a kind of marrying between consciousness on the one hand and realism on the other hand, um, because as scientists, usually um, you work with a realistic assumption. So there's something out there which you can talk about, which, you, which your theories are about, and um, this idea is expressed in conscious realism. Is, is this an idealist philosophy or is it, is it something different to that? Um, well, it depends a bit on how you how you construct it. I mean, idealist philosophies are usually there. They come in many different varieties, and some varieties might be um, might be very consistent with the few other varieties, not so much. Um, insofar as there are also idealist philosophies which are called objective idealists or realist idealism. I mean, that's it's kind of. Um, uh, that's a kind of contradiction in terms, but there are these kinds of of ideas around um, which say that there is a real existence to consciousness um, outside of our subjective access to it. And with those kind of theories, um, conscious realism is very much consistent. So for example, a lot of Eastern philosophies, um, Vedanta philosophy, can't go into that direction. There are also some Western philosophies, the philosophy of Spinoza, the German idealists, which had some similar ideas. There's there's this, I suppose, um, what was I going to ask? Um, going, going along with this idea of um, how, how 
how it fits in with other ideologies. Um, how does the interface theory of perception sort of fit with spirituality or, or does it fit with spirituality as the way you see it? Well, I think in, in principle, it's a, it's, it's a very good fit and it's one of the things which um, got me very intrigued by, the, by, by interface theory and by conscious, uh, conscious realism and conscious agent theory, um, that there are some motives which you find in spirituality, which you can also find in that theories. There's the big difference, though, that um, the theories we are working on are supposed to be mathematically rigorous. And usually, um, if you... If you um, read books or listen to spiritual teachers, for example, they use a very different language to express their ideas. So there's a very, I would say there's a, a difference in method, um, but in content, there are lots of similarities. Right. There's there's quite a, um, a growing number of people who are looking into using psychedelics as therapies for all sorts of things. It's quite clear that some psychedelics have quite a market effect on consciousness, um, even temporally. Um, do you think that some psychedelics can give us a glimpse at what's behind the curtain? Um, I know uh, there are lots of common threads with people who have DMT experiences, for instance. Um, have you considered that psychedelics might be giving us an insight into some sort of objective reality? Yes, that's a very actually that's a very interesting question. Um, whether the psychedelic experiences somehow um, transcend our uh, normal everyday experiences, the answer to that question is basically I don't know. Um, I think from the interface theory, one could say it is possible. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out just because it sounds very weird and foreign. And, and if you listen to people um, to the reports about psychedelic experiences, they say something like outside of space and time. And, and I wouldn't rule it out because of that. I mean, the interface theory says something very similar. So there might be actually some common ground. Um, but just from the fact that it might be consistent doesn't really follow um, that one supports the other, but it could be. I mean, I think, I think the good thing with the interface theory in respect to psychedelics or the mystical experiences are very similar. Um, is that it allows scientists um, to actually talk with those people. Um, to, to, it might lead to a very fruitful interaction. And how that interaction will turn out, I don't know, um, but at least it opens up the possibility. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that would be a, a great conversation to start in, um, in the scientific community as well. Um, there's quite an emphasis on um, natural selection choosing the the main thing our perceptions are evolved to evolved for is to um, pass on our genetic material in essence and uh, I was thinking quite hard today about if space-time is a, a construct what would be the benefit of gearing our perceptions towards um, you know passing on our genetic material when um, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm not really, I can't really grasp why all of our perceptions would be geared towards something like passing on genetic material when that's just nested in a um, an, an interface, I guess. Mm. Well, so the first thing to, to mention is that um, the, um, the evolution, uh, the, 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 the kind of Darwinism, generalized Darwinism that the interface theory relies upon is not bound to space and time. So um, the carriers of genes, as we as we know it, and say, okay, well, those are molecules and molecules are things in space and time, but the theory itself doesn't really refer to those kinds of entities. So it doesn't really, um, when you say it's important to pass on their genes, um, then that doesn't entail a specific claim about space and time otherwise it would be contradictory so that's not the case and um, the assumption that passing on one's genes is the is so to say the most fundamental thing or the currency in the realm of evolution uh, that's the standard assumption uh, that's the assumption um, from evolution by natural selection um, and we just use those assumptions basically as starting point um, but as again, it's it's a bit decoupled from the question of space and time. 
Right. So I guess I guess the passing on of genetic material would be would have to be considered within the constraints of the, the interface itself, which doesn't necessarily reflect. Yes, the- and 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 let's let's say when you when you think about the theory, which kind of tells you what lies behind those interfaces, if anything. Um, that theory would need to entail, would need to let you tell a good story about what genes are what genes are are in that in that idea, what selection pressures are in that larger theory, um, in such a way that if you project it back on your interface, you would recover a standard notion of, of genes and natural selection. Um, yeah. But yeah. in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's 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 something for a larger theory to actually give a constraint to the larger theory. It must be such that if you go back to the interface, um, your original assumption should be respected. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that makes a lot more sense to me now. Um, I uh, watched a very interesting video with uh, Rupert Sheldrake uh, several months ago about. And he asked the question, why is there so much beauty in the world? And he gave several examples where it wasn't, necess- it wasn't necessary for flowers to be um, as the, to look the way they are to attract bees or birds to pollinate them. And, you know, that's something that I um, was wondering how, how it fit into this interface theory of perception, why there is so much beauty to behold in the world where seemingly is not doesn't serve so much of a purpose yes i think i think that that's a very important question you you ask um and uh, the relation between beauty and and what we see that's a very old motive and already has in, in plato for example he thought very highly of beauty and of, of simplicity of symmetries and stuff like that so in terms of conscious conscious agent theory um one would like to have um, a kind of well. One would like to be able to to answer well. What's the dynamics of conscious agents actually for? Why do they do anything at all? And a beauty might be actually a, a motive for the whole thing to get started. Another one is um, exploring. Conscious agents might just be there to explore the experiences, to to build interfaces, to make new experiences. <laughs> Uh, we don't know what's the answer to this question. Um, but of course, beauty and symmetry, um, those are very fundamental motives which could play a role here. Well, it's an open question, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a great idea to think that there is some sort of creative force out there that's, you know, sort of pushing pushing the conscious agents in such a way that's that's leading to these interactions that result in us perceiving beauty. I suppose. Yes, and 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 if you mention uh, you mentioned just before there is certain kind of beauty which we observe, which is in some sense um, superfluous. It doesn't need to be there in order for the things to work. So why is it there? And that hints at the possibility that it's actually a kind of deeper principle um, which sets things um, into start, right? which, which which starts all the dynamics. Um, so it's it's a suggestion. I don't know. Um, it's a possibility. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Sure. Um, this uh, automatically makes me think about dreams. D- dreams are another one of those, you know, crazy unexplained things that happen to us every day, and we have really no idea why we have them or you know what they're for. Um, I guess. Do you think dreams might might be doing a similar thing to psychedelics and giving us some sort of insight? Or yes, I think so. I'm, I'm, and that's a dream. Dreaming is a very interesting topic by itself because, as you said, no one really knows what dreams are for and why we dream. Why do we dream at all? And um, it seems when we look at our dreams, we have this impression that at least in some dreams, um, um, space and time. Um, might not so be important as in our waking experience. So that might be a hint that there is something to it. Um, Dreams are methodologically very interesting because since we're all prone to dream, um, one could quite, well, at least straightforwardly think about people dreaming, waking people up during during their dreams and asking them about something about their dreams. So one might get a lot of data about 
possible experiences that one could have. Um, and in that sense, dreams give a very important, rich material for any theory of consciousness. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. Um, something else that uh, comes up a lot in some of the books that I've read is, um, you know, this continual de uh, delaying of, you know, what, what created what, you know, if there was a Big Bang, you know, what made the Big Bang? And then if, you know, there was something that made the Big Bang, what happened, you know, what created them? And there's this infinite loop. Um, let's just say, for example, we, you know, discovered a mathematically coherent um, idea of objective reality and these network of conscious agents. Are we any closer to figuring out how these conscious agents came to be? Or is this just something that in our, in our current interface, it's sort of out of reach? But I think that the, 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 the normal answer physicists would give you, if you ask them what's behind the Big Bang, they would say, well, there was no, sp no space before the Big Bang. So that's a kind of meaningless question to ask. Um, so if consciousness or conscious agents do not exist in space and time, um, then it's a bit of a strange question to ask, well, but what was before consciousness? Um, of course, one can ask, well, what, what's the cause for, for these things to happen? I think that's a legitimate question. One needs to answer that. Um, but um, I think the theory by itself already suggests that this idea to go back in time, so to say, um, becomes a meaningless question. Um, I think it's even even meaningless as to say, oh, they exist in eternity or something like that, because eternity, I mean, it's a timeless, it, it, the, the idea is to have a kind of timeless um, state and their questions concerning time um, become a bit... Um, meaningless, I think. Yeah. So it's just it's just an unfortunate question. Um, an unfortunate question, but on the other hand, what we just discussed with the beauty, I mean, this question: what causes things to happen, um, is still a good question, I think, um, because obviously things are happening. I mean, that's my my everyday experiences that things are happening and not just nothing or static kind of universe. Um, and then, of course, the question is: what's the reason for that? And I think that's a legitimate question to ask. Following in this line of thought, I mean, one of the one of the biggest things that I've um, postulated about after um, getting into this um, interface theory of perception is this idea of birth and death. Um, because if if our objective reality that we're that we're seeded in is outside of space time, then birth and death take take on a very different. Um, sort of feeling um, you might think that birth and death are um, in in a singularity to a point you know is is this something mm. that you've um, battled with um, yes I mean I think there, there, there are two points to, to it it's a good question first but um, there in two aspects I think on the one hand you you need to have something that corresponds in some sense to birth and death in order to get this evolutionary process going. I mean, it basically doesn't work without um, organisms coming into existence and getting out of existence, so to say. Um, but on the other hand, your question, what does birth and death mean if you, if you think about a, a non-spatial-temporal kind of state, if you think about the timeless universe, um, that's, a good, that's a very good question. And... Um, how conscious agents come into being or start to kind of um, stop existing. That's, a, that's an open question for the theory. Um, so the, I would say the naive possibility that's like a birth and death process that we observe here in the world that's and somehow out of the question. So you need to have a more subtle answer to that question. And one answer could be, but I'm speculating here, um, that you have a kind of undivided state of consciousness in the beginning, and then you have divisions and kind of divides into conscious agents, um, which would correspond to this to a birth of a conscious of, of an individual conscious agent. Um, but we, I do not have any mathematical formulation of that or any idea how such a mathematical formulation could look like. Um, but I think in principle, um, such a process is somehow needed in order um, to get things going. 
I really like that idea of maybe, you know, starting off as a, as a certain collection of conscious agents and then throughout your period of life it's, it's sort of they change and potentially um, move out and give birth to new conscious agents as you, as you develop and expand your consciousness. That's, that's kind of an interesting idea. Yes, we, 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 we tend to think about ourselves in terms of there's this one individual which persists through time, um, but that might be an illusion, basically. I mean, the, 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 there's this one self which might persist. No one really knows whether that's true. You might be a bunch of conscious agents. You're probably a bunch of conscious agents, a bunch of selves. And as you just as, as you just hinted at, I mean, that might the certain the number that kind of instantiates you that might change over your over the course of what you call your life. Um, no one really knows. I, I think I think most people don't um, don't consider this possibility, but I think it's a real possibility. Um, first, that you are many conscious agents. In fact, not just a single one. And the second thing is that this many can change from a few to many to very many to back to a few in the course of your life. You, we don't know. We don't have theory that would tell us that. But it's, a, it's an interesting possibility to explore. Yeah, I, I think it's a beautiful idea. And I, I think the interface theory of perception sort of uh, leads, leads, well, it leads my mind to go there anyway. Um, I'd love to ask you about uh, free will. There's yeah. a lot of... A lot of um, high-caliber uh, intellectuals out there suggesting that free will is sort of this illusion, and and you know everything sort of everything that has happened was always going to happen the way that it did, and and we didn't really have a say in it. Where I was always going to do the things that I've done, and will continue to do. How does the idea of free will fit in with the interface theory of perception? Well, I, there's a long history, as you said, between um, intellectuals who argue for or against free will. Um, and from a philosopher's perspective, there's also this interesting question what actually free will would amount to and how you would... Oops. Oh, sorry. Um, so even if you have something like free will, how would you be able to recognize it or would you recognize it in your, in your theories? Um, in conscious agent theory... Um, free will is a basic, is a very primitive notion that is assumed, um, so which we assume conscious agents to have. Um, you have a couple of perceptions, and out of these perceptions, you might choose a course of action. Um, formally, we can give that as a probability, but we don't really know. Basically, it could be this or it could be that. And then um, the assumption is that it's an expression of free will of those agents. And to actually choose one action or another. Um, but then one might argue how to interpret it and um, how to say it, saying like, oh, well, uh, that's not really free will as you would like to have it, or that's enough of free will to have it. Um, also, the question of randomness what does randomness ultimately mean? Um, if you have a random event, uh, a lot of people, they just gloss over it and they just say, okay, well, there's randomness hap happening in the universe, but what does it really mean? Um, is it much better than free will? Um, something novel coming into existence, which has no cause because it's random. Um, well, what does it mean? Is, is it really better than the, than the alternative of assuming free will? Um, I don't know. Um, so... In, in short, in conscious agent theory, free will is actually assumed, or it's often assumed um, as a basic ingredient of conscious agents. Um, how that plays out, I'm not exactly sure, and whether that's um, whether that really captures all of the notions of free will that we have, um, I, I, I doubt it, but it might uh, capture enough of them in order to call it free will. I Right. Oh, that's um, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that that was uh, an assumed sort of axiom of the of the theory, but I'm I'm glad it is assumed because I mean, to me, it, it seems like it's something that should be assumed. Um, but I guess that that debate will continue on. Um, yes, as you said, the debate, the debate will continue on, and um, there are um, a lot of people who. who without free will um, from just if you if you if you if you if you look at your experiences 
um, it's actually very straightforward to, to assume it. So if you assume that experience is fundamental, you might also assume free will is actually fundamental, um, just from your introspection. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to switch gears here for a moment. Um, I used an Oculus Rift uh, VR headset uh, several years ago, and I was astonished uh, at what, what the experience was like. And when I first tried it, I, I thought it's only going to be a few decades before this technology will be in, indistinguishable from, um, you know, sort of what we're, what we're experiencing um, in the real world. Um, do you think that there's a possibility that we are living in a, a simulation? Um, well, the question is, if you are living in a simulation, um, what's the simulation sort of say running on? In the Oculus Rift, you run it on a computer. Um, in conscious agent theory, you will obviously not run it on a computer because a computer is a kind of artifact relative to your interface. So there you would need to have a good story here if you want to use this simulation metaphor. Um, you mentioned Oculus Rift. I actually like I, I, I like those kind of virtual reality games um, because they illustrate an important thing. Um, so consciousness, our experience is not just only about having like a moving head or something like that, but really being able to do certain things, to act. That's what's happening in a virtual reality game. You have a virtual world, but um, that allows you the kind of simulation that you have actually allows you to do interesting things in that world. And I think that's a basic, um, that's a very important metaphor um, to understand the whole point of the interface theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in Don's book, there's there's quite a good example of of the, that comparison point. Um, using the VR headset, no, I, it's quite helpful to to think about. Um, Carl Jung talks about this idea of synchronicity, these yes. sort of a, a causal um, connections um, that don't seem to worry about space time. They they are they are synchronous, um, mm-hmm. and I guess uh, standard physics would say, well, that's impossible because you've got information moving faster than the speed of light. Um, but in in light of I, I suppose this idea of uh, you know space time being dead, these ideas of um, a causality or synchronicity um, are totally you know possible and on the table. Um, yes, it totally yeah. makes sense. And I think Carl Gustav Jung is a very interesting thinker, deep thinker, and um, there might be many interesting connection points between what he said and uh, what conscious agent theory says. Um, of course, he was not a mathematician, so he didn't produce a mathematical theory, but he had a lot of insights insights into the human psyche. Um, so uh, someone who's, well, he, if he would still be alive, would of course be a very good discussion partner, I think. Um, uh, but there are, of course, many people still alive who are kind of um, following his ideas build on his ideas and i think there's a lot of common ground here as you said the causality the synchronicity um it might play an important role and for conscious agent theory of course it's not a very foreign thing to assume for standard physics it's a bit difficult um, um, you have a causal effects in, in in quantum mechanics um one might think that's related to to synchronistic effects in the spirit of jung um, but if you assume that space-time is fundamental, the things in space-time, moving in space-time are fundamental, um, then you might be in trouble if you think about synchronistic events as a kind of information that moves from one place to another. Um, then you might get into trouble, as you said. Um, but for conscious agent theory, that might be actually that might work very well. So things like um, telepathy and 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 things like that uh, that have been studied by people like Rupert Sheldrake and, and Dean Radin, uh, you know, not, not very foreign idea, uh, ideas at all uh, within the context of interface theory of perception. I wouldn't rule it out categorically. Um, I think, I think it's, 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 there are interesting, interesting things and Rupert Sheldrake did many interesting experiments. Um, but of course the question is just because it's consistent doesn't really mean um, that it's actually an effect 
which we um, which is real in some sense. Um, but there is certainly a basis for communication and, and, and for talking about it and for finding a common theoretical ground. Um, that I would say that doesn't mean automatically that one supports the other. Um, that's not necessarily the case, um, but it could be the case. Because from the perspective of the interface theory or from the conscious agent theory, you would like to have a mathematically precise model. And uh, most, um, I would say, parapsychology stuff, which I know I'm not, I'm not very knowledgeable about it, um, but most of them is mainly statistics and statistical models and looking at, at small fluctuations in your st statistics. And I think that's the level of mathematics which is um, not yet deep enough um, or that's not the level of mathem mathematical sophistication that the conscious agent theory strives to have. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what what are you and your colleagues um, working on at, at the moment to further this idea of interface theory of perception? Um, well, at the moment we just we just had a discussion last week about like signposts of of, of, of potential work. I'm, I'm I'm working with with my colleague Chetan Prakash at, uh, on, on looking at the at the specific mathematical proofs. There's some room to for improvement and for making them more general and. I mean, scientific stuff, which doesn't sound very interesting. Um, another topic which is very interesting from the perspective of conscious agent theory is to actually look at this notion of a self. Um, what is a self? What makes a self? We had this discussion about whether you are one, one, one agent or multiple agents. So in order to answer that question um, or to get some insight into that question, one needs to have a, um, a very proper definition or a good notion of a self within the formalism. And at the moment, there is no um, notion of a self or what the self is in, in conscious agent theory. Um, conscious agents are usually thought as, as individuals, but that's not the same as a, as a self in the sense that I think I'm a self or that I experience myself as a self. So making this connection, that's one thing um, with respect to conscious agent theory, which we are working on. Another, another important question, I think, and it's more related to the space-time interface idea, um, is to make um, or is to find out what actually, what, what, what we call when we do physics, what we call measurements or objective, um, getting objective knowledge about the world, what it actually means in terms of the interface um, theory or in terms of conscious agent theory. Not so clear yet. And the third thing is, of course, the big thing um, to find what we call the projection on the interface, where we say that space and time arise um, as projections on the interface. To make that more precise, that's the third thing which we're currently working on. Well, you you guys have got a a, a lot of um, a lot of things under under your belt at the moment um, to be to be working on. Um, yes, there's plenty of work. Um, yeah. Do you see uh, something sometime in the future where these ideas become more mainstream? Like, is this is this something that you can see um, penetrating in, into? Um, you yes, know? I think the climate is changing a lot. So five years ago or ten years ago, uh, when I started out doing my studies, um, that I mean, it, it's still considered not very mainstream and a bit out there. But back then, like ten years, ten years ago, it was it was like oh, totally crazy. And now it's just a little bit crazy. And my hope is that in 10 years that people say, well, okay, that's a, in some sense, that's a viable alternative um, to what we currently have. And especially among young people, I, people who are studying, who are going, going to college, finish high school in the 20s and 30s, um, I found a lot of, actually a lot of sympathy for, this, for, for some of these ideas. Um, so there seems to be really a kind of climate change happening right now. And yeah, I hope that will continue for the next years. Yeah, me, me too. I think, um, I think it's a really worthwhile idea for people to um, familiarize themselves with. And I think once, once you sort of wrap your head around it a little bit, it's quite easy to see how this could uh, really be something worthwhile uh, and, and something that we could um, start putting a lot more um, brain power behind. Um, mm. 
and yeah, I'm I'm just I'm so glad there are there are guys like you out there pushing the boundaries. And I think um, Donald Hoffman said in like every interview he did for his book that um, like 99.99 percent he's he's wrong about this theory in some way. But what you're trying to do is identify precisely where it's wrong. Uh, and if you can do that, then you're one step closer to finding the truth than you would have been if you couldn't pursue the idea. So, um, yeah. Yes. I, I think, thank you very much. Uh, that's, that's a good thing to say. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm very, I'm very happy. I, I think, I think those, the, 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 these theories of those kinds of theories are actually um, very good in the sense that they connect a lot of people with different backgrounds and people who are interested in spirituality, for example, um, people, who are interested in science, of course, uh, but also people who are interested in religion in in, in more, like in more common hum, human issues. I mean, those people are brought together, and um, there's a lot of communication which is enabled by uh, by doing those theories. And I learned a lot of people. Um, I got introduced to a lot of people which I would probably um, talk to otherwise if I were not into. Um, those specific theories. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I think it's a very good development. Going back from, from this over-specialization um, to a kind of common, um, common human search for meaning and proof. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that'd be a, a great way to end this. Uh, I, won't, I won't keep you any longer um, than, than I need to. And um, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing some of your knowledge and uh, getting getting this information out there, I think it's really important. So thank you so much for that. Thanking you and thanking you for um, putting the word out there. So <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'm so grateful to Robert for giving me some of his time. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Robert and his colleagues are doing, consider getting a copy of the book The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman. This book is easy to understand and the perfect introduction into learning about this theory. As usual, I've been busy organising many new podcast guests for the coming months, so please make sure you keep up to date with what I'm doing. Uh, to keep up with my work or to seek a consultation, you can find me on social media using at Richie Flow Nutrition. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care. <laughs>